Turn with me, please, to Exodus chapter 20. Continue in our series, Ten Words, the Law of God. We find ourselves this morning looking at the third word. Do not blaspheme. Our key words for our worshipers in training are name, vain, and blasphemy. Exodus 20, and we will begin by reading verse 7. Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, we have the tendency to take God's commands and to reduce them a bit. And this happens to be one, perhaps more than all of the others, that we reduce. There is so much more to this commandment than maybe first strikes us. A third commandment is not just about the words that we speak with our mouths. The third commandment is not simply about pronouncing God's name alongside the word damn. Just as the second commandment has a much greater meaning and has much greater implications to it than simply bowing down before statues and figurines that we might keep in our home. There's so much more to this commandment than simply abusing God's name with our words in the third commandment. If you recall, as we looked at the first commandment of God, God is commanding us regarding whom we worship. And that command was that we worship God alone. The second commandment referred us to how we are to worship Namely, we are to worship God's way and not our own way. And so as we come to the third commandment, we will see that God is commanding us regarding with what attitude of the heart we are to worship God. In other words, that we worship God not with a heart of reckless folly, but we worship God with a reverent fear. You see, God's not only concerned about doctrinal orthodoxy. He's not only concerned about liturgical precision as we meet together. Most importantly, God wants our hearts. He wants us reverently bowed down before him in our worship. Now, remember, as we get into this, every command of God has a negative aspect and also has a positive aspect. And we've looked at that in both of the first two commandments. Now we see here in the third commandment that it is a negative command. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Do not blaspheme. So what is the positive command here? Well, it is that we shall use the name of God. We shall recognize the name of God in holiness, in reverence. In godly fear, we should hold up the name of God with a rightful reverence, a rightful fear for who God is and what He is doing and has done and will continue to do. So the first thing we are going to consider this morning is God's name. Let us consider God's name. The name of God is much broader than simply pronouncing Yahweh. Now to even say that, to a Jew, you are liable to be stoned. 
it was the practice of the Jews that they did not even pronounce the name of God as Yahweh because they saw it to be so holy and so reverent that it would not pass through their defiled lips. And so in their sinfulness, they found other ways to do so. Now, of course, they gave other names to God. God's uh, names that he gave to himself would be pronounced, but Yahweh itself was not pronounced. And as you read through the scriptures, you'll see, particularly in the Old Testament, when you see the word Lord in all capital letters, in most of your versions that will write it as such, that is the name of God, Yahweh. But this is much broader as we consider the name of God than simply pronouncing Yahweh or God or Jesus Christ. These aren't irrelevant issues, but the name of God is so much broader than this. As we talk about the name of God, name itself is, as, as God writes this in his, his, his command, he's using a figure of speech in the Greek. It's called a synecdoche. In other words, we're speaking of a part of something, but as we speak about that part, we're referring to the whole thing. So as an example, if we were to say that, uh, that Becky really plays those keys as she plays, and she does, uh, we're referring to her playing the entire piano, not simply the keys on the piano. So we're talking about part, but we're referring to the whole thing. And so when we, we refer to the name of God, we're speaking of a part of God, but it's a reference to the entirety of God himself. And so I think the Baptist Catechism in question 59 has it correct when it asks, what does, what does the third commandment of God require of us? And the answer is the third commandment requires the holy and reverent use of God's names titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. That covers everything. That's exactly right. So you see, it's not just how we speak his name. That certainly is part of it. But it includes so much more about God. God's name includes his whole person. Give you an example of this from Exodus chapter 33. Exodus 33, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai. And if you recall, the people of Israel, in his absence, have assembled their gold together, and Aaron throws it in the fire, and his words, Out came this calf. I don't know where it came from. Foolish. And so the calf is present, the covenant is broken, and Moses is concerned that the Lord go before them, but not abandon them. You see in Exodus 33, in verse 13, Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Moses is pleading with God, remember us. And Moses wants to know God's person. God, Moses wants to know God's presence and his glory. Look at verse 19, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you 
my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I show mercy. So the name of the Lord, the presence of God, His attributes, His, His goodness, His glory. We see in verse 22, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. It's a glorious picture. God is passing by Moses. But notice he says, my name will pass by. But he also references in that his glory will pass by. His goodness will pass by. And it is so glorious and so magnificent that he must cover the eyes of Moses that he not behold it in his fullness lest he die. Then we see in chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord... The Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. So the event happens. God's name passes by. And so when the name of God passes by, the entirety of God passes by. God's name is strongly filled with content and it denotes his his personal work. It may be used as an alternative for Yahweh himself. And so what's the proper response to this? As the glory of God passes by, how do we respond? We see in verse 8, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. So Moses had the right heart attitude, reverence. So you see, when we pray, Our Father, hallowed be your name. We're not so much concerned about the label of God's name being honored on the earth. We are, but that's not mainly what we're praying We're praying that we want the hearts of men to bow down low to God in reverent worship of God. This is the goal of missions. Let all the peoples praise Him, as the psalmist writes. And so, as we consider the name of God, we're considering an issue of the heart, the hearts of men. Now, we're going to consider several ways that we can apply this in our lives. One of these ways is as we consider the ordinances, as we consider the elements of grace, as we consider the means of grace that God has provided for us, that we can know Him more. One of these ways is in prayer. As we pray, we pray in Jesus' name. The Lord has commanded us to do so. Why? Because Jesus himself is our our mediator. He is our access to the Father. This is a great and glorious thing. We have his name. We pray in the name of Jesus. And so prayer is a key to unlock heaven. We cannot treat this lightly or in vain. We don't treat it with contempt. 
This is not just a little tagline in our prayer to help us know when our prayer is complete. It's not something we say to make our prayers official or to sound more holy. It has meaning. It has power. It has purpose. Do not take lightly that we pray in the name of Jesus. As God's children, we've been given this right to use this right frivolously, to use this right thoughtlessly, is to take God's name in vain. When we pray heartless prayers and say that we do so in the name of Jesus, we use the name of the Lord in vain. When we pray for situations and we simply give very little thought to our prayers, but we utter a few words and we do so in the name of Jesus, we take God's name in vain. Consider also places of worship. In Deuteronomy twelve eleven. we read, To the place that the Lord your God will choose to make His name dwell there. There you shall bring all that I command you. Likewise, 1 Kings 8, 29, your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. And in the New Testament, we see in Matthew 18, as the church gathers to make decisions regarding the discipline of believers, those who are in consistent sin, we read that where two or three gather, God is there with them. As we gather as the church, as we gather together, we're gathering in the name of God, in the presence of God. Do not take that in vain. If we take lightly this, which we're doing right now, the gathering of the saints, if we take this lightly, if this has little meaning to us, that we come together to worship God, we worship vainly. We take God's name in vain. Consider, too, God's word. In Daniel 9.5, we read, We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled turning aside from your commandments and rules. Now, what happens when we do not listen to and submit to God's word? When we ignore instead of revere God's word? When our Bibles are not cherished? When the word of God is not studied? Again, we're taking God's word lightly. We're taking God's spoken truth in vain. And so God's word is very much a part of God's name. Consider too his his works. I want us all to look at Psalm eight. Look with me at Psalm eight. The psalmist writes, O Lord, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy of the avenger. 
when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so you see that everything in all the earth is an expression of the name of God. Everything that is made is made by the hand of God. And all the providences of my life are in place as a result of the hand of God, the finger of God. And so we have to ask, do we really believe that? What do you say when your computer crashes? Or your tire goes flat. How much do you believe that God is in the midst of those things as well? When a circumstance doesn't go our way, when our air conditioner breaks in the middle of August, or when we don't get the raise that we were banking on at work, or when our children come home with bad grades, how do we approach these situations? Is it with disgust and anger? We must remember who's steering our ship. And when we fail to recognize the sovereignty of God in our circumstances, we are using God's name in vain because we are forgetting about him altogether. So you see very early on that this issue of the name of God is much broader than the verbal pronunciation of G-O-D. The primary issue is not the lips a few inches lower. It's the heart. It's the attitude. So the Baptist catechism is right. The third commandment requires the holy and reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. The catechism goes on in question 60 and asks, what is forbidden in the third commandment? The answer, the third commandment forbids all profaning and abusing of anything whereby God makes himself known. And again, names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. In other words, we are to treat everything in which God has made himself known with solemn awe, with reverence, with godly biblical fear. And so as we consider God's name, we see very quickly this is much broader than simply pronouncing Yahweh, pronouncing God in a frivolous manner. We've considered God's name. Let's consider God's prohibition. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Do not take... Literally, this means do not lift up or do not carry the name in our hearts, in our minds, in our worship. Do not take it up and use it 
Do not take up the things of God and the person of God in a vain way. And as we talk about doing something in vain, literally, we're talking about doing something with emptiness or nothingness. Doing something in vanity. In the Hebrew language, there's a particular single vowel. It's called a shavah, which is the same as the word vain. But a shavah is, is simply, it's, it's two little dots. And they go underneath a consonant. So here's how it's pronounced. That's it. That's how you pronounce the shavah. It's silent. In other words, we consider it of no account. So the word shavah comes from the root that means to be waste. It carries the idea of something that is empty of meaning and therefore it is completely wasteful. And so we see the same meaning of the words take and shavah used in Psalm 24, 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false, shavah, empty, and does not swear deceitfully. So altogether, as we look at the prohibition of this command, we see do not take up, do not carry, do not lift up God's name as if it were of no account. Do not use God's name as though it were empty and nothing. Treat God's name not with no account. Don't treat it as if it were nothing and emptiness and silence. Don't trample the name of God or the things near and dear to God. And so the prohibition is against our hearts trampling on these things. Think of it this way. If you were to give a gift to someone, and as soon as you hand them that gift, they were to take it and throw it on the ground and stomp on it, what's your response? Men, if you, if you save your money all year long and work hard and keep a secret from your wife to buy her a new diamond ring on her anniversary, much bigger and brighter than the one you gave her when you got engaged, and as soon as you give it to her, she looks at it and says, oh, that's nice, and turns around and gives it to your two-year-old to add to their toy jewelry collection. Women, perhaps you... You give your husband a brand new shirt that you've personally designed, you've cut out, you've sewn together by hand and he takes it right outside and he cleans up an oil spill in the garage with it. What is our response? Why are you doing that? It causes outrage in us, right? Taking something of great value, of great concern and care, something that has been given with great love and affection and accounting it as nothing. Now, what does such an action express about one's estimation of what has been given? Perhaps more importantly, about the one who has given it. It takes... It's taking something that is given with love, something that is near and dear, something that is full of affection and using it in vain, treating it as nothing and giving it as little account. You see, the reality is that our Heavenly Father has given us, His children, certain solemn things by which we are to remember His person. He has given us His names. 
God, Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has given us His titles, Redeemer, King, Prophet, Priest. He's given us His attributes. He's omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent. His goodness, His justice, His mercy. He's given us His ordinances, preaching, the Lord's table, the reading of the Scriptures, prayer, baptism. He's given us His Word, 66 books of Him revealing Himself to us. He's given us His works, all the fingered movements in our lives that come from God. And if we are not to take the Lord's name in vain, we're not to trample these things. We're to revere them. We're not to ignore these things or disregard them, but to treat them with respect, not apathy. We can't just shove it in the junk drawer and pay no attention to it for weeks or months on end. So what does this look like for us? Practically, how might we take God's name in vain? The first is what we most likely think of as we consider this command, and that is verbal blasphemy. It is cursing in anger and using God's glorious name. The name of God, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's to speak the name with a bitter and resentful attitude or as a substitute for or alongside some filthy four-letter word. This is the most basic application of this commandment. It's the one we all immediately think of when considering the third commandment most likely. When I was in the military, I was always amazed at how certain men were able to use certain words as every part of speech in the English language. Four-letter words used as nouns, verbs, adjectives, adverbs, you named it, they could do it. And without fail, the name of God was used right alongside their colorful terms that they so often used to describe manure and excrement. With no regard for the holy name of God, for the holy name of the Lord Jesus Christ, with blasphemous words, his name is brought to the dung pile and left to rot with the other filth of the world. And we've all heard it in movies, in private conversations, in locker rooms, in boardrooms. Little boys and grown men all attempting to impress their friends or to gain an ear or to express a certain level of seriousness by trampling God's name in the dust on the ground to do so. It's blasphemy. And sadly, in our culture, we become very numb to it because we hear it so often. It's the very thing the Apostle Paul picks up on in Ephesians 4, 29, when he writes, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. To use the name of God as a casual expletive is never innocent. Because it brings the whole character of a sovereign, holy God to the level of a curse. Blasphemy is slandering the name of God. Whenever we use God's name, we should use it thoughtfully or else we misuse the name of the Lord our God and we dishonor Him. 
In Leviticus 24, there's a story about the son of an Israelite woman who blasphemed the name of the Lord with a curse. He was put to death. Now, that may not be today's punishment, but God is no less severe in his ultimate judgment of those who use his name cheaply or use it as a common swear word. And the God who put the man to death in Leviticus 24 was only doing immediately on earth what he will do in the final judgment to those who will use his name as a swear word now. Seriously? Yes. Seriously. Because it's a serious indicator of the condition of one's heart. For out of the mouth, the heart speaks, says the Lord Jesus. And if this is piercing you right now because you find in your heart a willingness to curse the name of God, it ought to cause you to tremble at the thought of giving of God giving you as you wish and damning you or anyone else in hell. It's also verbal blasphemy when we're telling bad jokes about God. When we're laughingly imply, when we laughingly imply in our, our joking that God made a mistake somewhere or that God did something wrong or that God is anything or anyone other than what he truly is. You know, it's popular to tell jokes about dying and going to heaven. And when you get there, you'll see St. Peter at the pearly gates. And he's the decider as to whether or not you enter into or do not enter into heaven. You know, I hope we consider that. that that's not funny at all. That is blasphemy. That's taking something from God and giving it to a man to whom it does not belong. Namely, the power and the right of God as judge. The Apostle Peter, godly as he was, has no bearing on whether or not I or you enter into heaven or escape the judgment that is yet to come. It is only Christ and only his work that has that power. And to jokingly claim otherwise is to dishonor the name of God. Likewise, when we speak of hell or damnation with a sort of trivial lilt, these are the works of God. And these works should cause fear and awe and reverence. Not laughter, not mockery, not joking. Dare we laugh at hell? It is no small thing. It is no laughing matter to damn someone or something to hell. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And it is verbal blasphemy when we turn such truths of God's work into jokes and giggles. And so verbal blasphemy is very much a part of this commandment. But it is not all. We also use the name of the Lord our God in vain in moral defiance. God has made himself known to you in his word. And so as you hear God's word, God passes by your mind. God passes by your soul, your heart in his word as the prophets and apostles have clearly spoken in his name in the scriptures. 
But you know, there's been times in ministry where I've heard people tell me, I know what the Bible says. I understand what the scriptures teach. But I'm just not, I'm not there right now. I'm just not, I'm not ready for that. I just need some time to work through it. Or perhaps even more defiant. Well, I, I know it's sinful, but I'll, I'll just ask for forgiveness. You know, the more underhanded way to say it is, well, nobody's perfect. So what? Does our lack of perfection become our justification for our sin? You're right, nobody's perfect. But that doesn't change God's standard, and it does not excuse our sinfulness. It's simply a reminder of how great the grace of God is, and that while we're not perfect, He has chosen in His love to redeem us in His Son, Jesus Christ, anyway. And to take that great reality and to belittle the death of Christ on your behalf by justifying your sin by saying, I know it's sinful, but hey, nobody's perfect. That's blasphemy of moral defiance. And again, it's very revealing of a person's heart. It's high-handed, premeditated moral defiance and it is a trampling of God's name. This is also where many Christians try to convince themselves that their particular situation is different. Well, I know what God has commanded, but my circumstances are unique. Really? According to the Scriptures, there is nothing new under the sun. What, do you suppose God didn't see it coming? You suppose God forgot to address it all together in His Word? Or another one that seems to have gained a lot of popularity over the last few years. Only God can judge me. Well, in one sense, you're right. God will be your ultimate judge. And I'm not sure with that kind of attitude toward God that his judgment is exactly what you want. Because what that statement really means in the heart is I do what I want and God deals with it. Again, making very little of the name of God. Making very little of the grace and the mercy of God. Trampling His name, mocking the death of Christ by using what He has accomplished on the cross as an excuse for sin. I will worship my lusts. I will worship my wants. God's name? I will spit in the face of God's name, which is reflected in his word. He can just deal with it because after all, he's loving and forgiving, right? What shame. What a disgusting misuse of God's name and God's work and God's son. Parents, it's, it's the defiance like when your child stands before you and says, I didn't do it. When you know full well they did because you already got the phone call or you saw it happen outside on the front lawn. 
It's a clear, blatant lie as if nobody would know, as if nobody was watching and as if we can get away with it by pretending it didn't happen. It's the defiance of a man who sits in front of his computer screen and looks at pornographic images because he's home all alone or because his wife is asleep or because the door to his office is closed. How is this a violation of the third commandment? Because the name of God includes the attributes of God. And God is omnipresent. His eyes are fixed on your wicked lusts and sees you fulfilling the desires of the flesh when you wrongly assume that nobody is watching. A man would not think to let his five-year-old lace his eyes on such vile things, but supposedly when he's alone, it's as if to say it's only the eyes of God. It makes so little of the name of God and what he has created in his image. It's the defiance of a woman who will trade sweet morsels of gossip while the tape of God's omniscience is running. When men and women in the military are on a combat mission, they're given very specific instructions about what they can and cannot say when they use the telephone or what they can and cannot uh, include in letters and emails that they send back home because of their security. There's a possibility that the, the phone conversation might be picked up on by the enemy or that, that letter or that email might be intercepted by the enemy. And so the instruction is to use one's words very carefully. To speak with great care. Well, the reality is that every one of our conversations is being recorded by the omniscient mind of God. How dare we not speak carefully? And so you see, moral defiance is using God's name in vain. Also, we use God's name in vain in our spiritual apathy. How do you approach the worship of God? How do you prepare your heart? How do you prepare your soul for the worship of God? Do you come into corporate worship with an eager longing for more of Christ in your life? As we sing songs, are you thinking about the words that you're singing? Or are you wondering when we get to sit down? When you're listening to the preaching of God's word, are you just hoping that it'll be over soon so you can go home and eat? I recognize I'm not the most pleasant to look at or listen to. But this isn't about me. This is about the word of God. Do you do whatever it takes to see that the word of God is finding its way into your ears and into your mind and into your heart? When you leave here today, what will you do with everything that you've taken in? You're certainly entitled to talk about the songs, the ones you did and didn't like. Entitled to talk about whose dress you were particularly fond of this morning or how bad or how long or how boring the sermon was. But when we do this, we again express a reality about our hearts. A reality of our hearts that is blasphemous. Because while we have opportunity to give our entire heart to God in worship, instead we focus 
our attention on idle, trivial thoughts. And perhaps above all else, I mentioned this morning this area that I know all too well myself. I struggle to keep the focus of my heart in worship on Christ. I know the difficulty here. But spiritual apathy, coming into the worship of God, more concerned about a game or a project at work or the homework we didn't finish, or simply keeping our eyes open because we didn't prepare our bodies physically for worship, we take the worship of God lightly and we worship in vain. We dishonor his name. Is God not worthy of every ounce of our attention? Is he not worthy of one day in our week to get our full affection and our full focus? I want to challenge all of us to consider as we go from here today. What are our conversations going to be? Even right out here as we mingle together and talk, what is our focus? And when you sit down with your family today for lunch, what is your focus? When you sit down with your brothers and sisters in Christ and ask, How did the Lord challenge you in worship today? Do you ask these questions? How will you seek to apply God's word in your life today? What was most striking from the word of God for you today? Do you talk like this? Let us not worship in vain. Let our hearts not be hardened. And so I have to ask, has anyone not taken a hit yet? Is anyone unscathed? by the arrows of God's commandment. Another very practical application of the third commandment in our culture is lying under oath. It's very common in our culture for a guilty party to manipulate the truth in order that their consequences be altered. When someone takes the seat in the courtroom... They first place their hand upon a Bible and they affirm that they will tell the truth. Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? And when we don't do this, we are instead pledging allegiance to the father of lies while under oath of the name of God. Our vow, our commitment to tell the truth in the courtroom is rooted in the third commandment. The implication is that there is a reverence, there is an awe, there is a rightful fear of God's name. A recognition that what I say, what I profess is before God first and foremost. He sees it, he hears it, and he will not clear the guilty. Therefore, I will tell the truth no matter what because it is very important in this manner. Oh, how little regard we have for this in our culture. From the highest office in our land, when the 90s we considered what the definition of the word is, is. All the way down to the local magistrate courts where men and women really weren't speeding or driving recklessly, if you just consider it in the right way. Men seek to hide from the due process of the law under the oath of the name of God. And that is taking the name of the Lord our God in vain. And so we've considered God's name and God's prohibition. Let's consider quickly God's warning. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. 
Oh, there's trouble here, right? Have you sat here this morning in the hearing of God's word and found yourself guiltless? Are you free from blaspheming the holy name of God? God tells us he does not wink at sin. He does not laugh at blasphemous jokes. He does not look away from our lies. He does not simply let us spit on his name and shrug his shoulders as if it were no big deal. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. You see, breaking the third commandment in the eyes of God is no misdemeanor. It's a felony. It's a capital offense and it is worthy of death. That's what he says, right? No man will be held guiltless who takes his name in vain. It's a heinous crime. So how are you responding to this? I suggest in one of three ways. The first is that perhaps you are a reckless blasphemer. And as you hear me this morning, you're just simply thinking, these people are religious extremists. Who cares? A few curse words on the golf course? A few jokes in the office about God striking someone down with lightning? Telling someone to go to hell when they cut me off on the road? Looking at a little pornography? Telling a little white lie when it's not going to hurt anybody? Big deal. What's the big deal? This is silly. Now you will roll your eyes and harden your heart, but I assure you, God does not take this lightly. But I'm a good person. I'm here at church. I even dropped a few dollars in the plate earlier. You people with your holier-than-thou talk, you preacher with your hellfire and damnation, I don't need this. If this is you, I warn you. I fear for you. Because you have recklessly taken the name of God in vain and you are carelessly waltzing through life using God's name frivolously. And God himself says you will not go unpunished. Perhaps you're responding as an awakened sinner. This is the response we want. This is what we hope for. This is what we pray for. You sit here with a conscience full of arrows, bleeding, You're guilty and you hear me. The more I talk about it, the further you feel yourself sink. The more and more you feel the weight of God's word and the weight of your sin. You're thinking of all the ways you've used God's name in vain. The things you've said, the things you've done, the things in your heart day after day and week after week. You know you are guilty and you are right. And I hope this burdens you beyond belief because the scriptures say that your sins will not go unpunished. This is dreadful. This is fearful. This is horrible. And you are in trouble. The wrath of God is stored up and is ready to be poured out upon you. And I hope this causes you to tremble in fear. But I have a blessed hope for you. Look with me, Exodus 34. Exodus 34, beginning in verse 6. Please do not miss this. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, 
the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's strange, isn't it? Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? That seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? I hope if you are awakened as a sinner this morning that you're on the edge of your seat and everything inside of you is screaming, what must I do to be saved? Because your sins do not go unpunished. The sin of every man everywhere will be punished. And for the reckless blasphemer, he will die in this life. And according to the word of God, he will be bound up and cast into hell, separated from God, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the fire is not quenched, where the worm does not die. He will suffer excruciating torment for all of eternity under the wrath of God. But for others... The penalty for sin has already been paid. All the blasphemous words of our mouths, all the reckless uses of God's name, our jokes, our lies, our spiritual apathy, they have been paid for on your behalf. You, awakened sinner, can take your dirty, filthy hands and place them upon the Lamb of God who takes away, who bears up all the sins of the world and all of your sins, all of your taking of God's name in vain, your acts of defiance in the heart, your lips, your hands, all that you've done. Take those filthy hands and place them on the lamb and wipe them clean in the woolen coat of the lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, and be free from the penalty of your guilt. In Jesus Christ, every drop of sin comes off of you and then you pull away. And what happens with the avalanche of God's wrath against you? God's wrath that you deserve on judgment day. What happens to all of it? It already fell on the Lord Jesus Christ on crucifixion day. All the wrath of God fell down upon the Son of God. All the hatred of God for your sin and my sin poured out in full force on Jesus so we would not receive the same. Have you placed your hands on Him? If so, what is there left for you on the judgment day? Not a single pebble to be stoned by and not a single drop of blood. Not a single grain of God's anger because all of it fell on the Lord Jesus Christ. Awakened sinner, I have the best news for you. Acknowledge your sin today. Recognize your sin today. Admit your sin before God and turn from your sin. Place your faith, place your trust and your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin and believe in the gospel. 
Believe that God the Father has made God the Son who knew no sin to be sin on your behalf that you might become the righteousness of God. That you might have a right standing before God. Oh, how I pray for you. I'll pray for you today. I'll pray for you this week. I'll pray that you call my phone and knock on my door because you're coming to tell me that the Lord our God has struck you with trembling and fear and caused you to be born again. Awaken sinner, we pray for you. Lastly, perhaps your response this morning is as the smitten believer. It is those of us who are not doubting our salvation but perhaps we're a bit ashamed by our lack of sanctification. As you hear the word of God, as you hear the implications of this commandment, we ask, how can I do such things against my God? To treat his name as nothing, to treat his eyes with contempt, to treat his word with such apathy. I'm so ashamed of myself. I tremble at the thought of what would happen if God held me guilty for my sin. I could never stand. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Well, thanks be to God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, this is why it's important for us to hear and to know and to understand the law of God. It keeps us running time and time and time and time again back to the cross of Christ. Over and over and over we see our need for Christ because we recognize the pollution of our hearts. We recognize the blasphemy of our hearts. We recognize the frailty of our flesh and that we come nowhere near what God has required. And yet Christ has fulfilled all that God has required on our behalf. And most amazing above it all, We will go from here today and we will blaspheme God in some way. And he still loves us. He loves us. Praise God. Let's pray. God, I'm shaken by your word. I tremble in fear for those who will hear your word and walk from here unchanged. Who will hear and know your word and simply pass it off as meaningless and trivial and trite. Holy Spirit, awaken sinners. Give them life in Christ, abundant life in Jesus, that they too can proclaim with those of us whom you have redeemed and rescued that we know we are blasphemers, we know we are sinners, and yet we know that you love us, that Christ has redeemed us, that Christ is our friend. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
I pray that that amazes all of us today. Let our mouths be stopped. Our hearts be overwhelmed. And let our heads be bowed before our Maker and our King. Because of how great your grace is upon us, how great your love is in and through us, and how powerful your word is to transform us, to give us life, that we might live life and to live it more abundantly because we have an eternal hope, an eternal hope that rests in the reality that we will not stand before our Father in judgment day in fear and trembling because we are ridden with the penalty that is ours because of our sin, but that Christ has already bore the penalty for our sin. And because of that, we stand firmly, assuredly, with great hope. Amaze us overwhelm us and strike within us a greater awe and reverence for your name. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, that we pray. Amen.